Bartlett of the Project on Middle East Political Science, and this is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Dana Moss about her new book, The Arab Spring Abroad, Diaspora Activism Against Authoritarian Regimes. We'll also hear from Wendy Perlman about her new article, Mobilizing from Scratch, Large-Scale Collective Action Without Pre-Existing Organization in the Syrian Uprising. And finally, we'll talk to Salah Ben Hamou about the crisis unfolding in the Sudan following its military coup. Thanks for listening to the program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and we're now joined on our book segment by Dana Moss of Notre Dame, talking about her new book, The Arab Spring Abroad, Diaspora Activism Against Authoritarian Regimes, uh, just published by Cambridge. Uh, Dana, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about this book. Thanks. So this book explores um, a neglected dimension of what we now know as the Arab Spring revolutions that took off in places like Egypt, Tunisia, Syria, Libya, and Yemen in 2011, which is that of how the diaspora, um, and by diaspora, I mean refugees, exiles, immigrants, and expatriates and their descendants a lot of times, how these folks living abroad outside of their home countries mobilized to support the revolutions that were happening. Um, And so the book uh, tackles this question about when diasporas matter, when they become important. Um, On the one hand, we have literature uh, that says, for example, in Albert Hirschman's famous framing of exit voice and loyalty, that if you uh, exit your home country, if you leave and go abroad, you're basically foregoing voice. Uh, You don't have the opportunity to participate in contentious politics. Uh, But then you also have a lot of historical examples from Ho Chi Minh to Vladimir Lenin to uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini that show that diaspora leaders and and exiles can play a huge role in politics and revolutions. And the question is, okay, so when do they become important? When do they matter? So the book tries to fill this gap by exploring in the cases of Libya, Yemen, and Syria, when diaspora movements for the revolutions and for humanitarian relief emerged and trying to figure out how and to what extent they actually played a role in the revolutions. So the main contribution of the book is the provision of a set of conditions that explain when diaspora activism and social movements emerge against authoritarian regimes in their home countries and how and to what extent they actually intervene and play a role in those revolutions. And I'm sure we can get into some of those mechanisms and conditions um, moving forward, but I'll leave it there. Yeah, so tell us about the the case selection and why you chose to look at uh, Syria, Yemen, and uh, Libya. Yeah, there there were a lot of really interesting empirical reasons, but also theoretical ones as well. So um, the Arab Spring itself really um, sort of undid my own uh, fieldwork plans for my PhD work at the time. Uh, And so rather than being in Yemen, as as I had planned, um, I got some grant money uh, from the American Institute for Yemeni Studies that allowed me to uh, use that money rather than being in Yemen to study what was happening in the diaspora. And this came to my attention because the revolutions motivated me to get on social media and particularly on Twitter. And what I was hearing from Yemeni British activists and Yemeni Americans was that the revolutions were really mobilizing them as never before. They they said they'd never before come together. They never before been so unified. And they were really excited and motivated to try to um, 
contribute to change in the home countries. And of and course, you were, you were engaged in, uh, in work on Yemen before the Arab Spring right. with, with these movements or organizations. That's, yeah, that's exactly right. Thanks, Mark. So I was part of the Yemen Peace Project, which was an organization mm -hmm. that ran for 10 years um, to try to uh, promote awareness about Yemen, Yemen uh, culture and art, as well as contest uh, war on terror-based policies um, and interventions that the United States was making in Yemen. So I had already had some contacts, um, but primarily they were based with Yemenis in Yemen, not so oh, much with the diaspora. And so uh, what was really interesting was that, you know, as people were starting to literally come out and say, you know, I'm with the revolution, I'm for regime change, um, our networks just exploded. Uh, and so this gave me an opportunity to say like, hey, what's going on? And then on top of that, I was living in Southern California at the time. And uh, Southern California has huge populations around the LA area of Assyrian uh, Americans and Libyan Americans. And they were also telling me similar stories that were even more dramatic such as, you know, this is the first time we've ever felt comfortable protesting against the regimes in public. And I thought, well, how is this possible, right? Because we would assume that if a diaspora or if an exile um, moves from an authoritarian country to a democratic one, that all of a sudden they're granted these democratic rights and civil liberties to protest and to profess their views against regimes. And so it was very, I became very curious in a sort of grounded qualitative fashion about well, why was the Arab Spring really the first time that a lot of these groups felt comfortable protesting in public? And certainly it was the first time that the community came together and came out uh, in, en masse, um, at least at the beginning of the revolutions. But beyond that, I think, uh, you know, the US and Britain have really interesting theoretical and analytical leverage that they can provide. And both countries have, on the one hand, uh, very similar foreign policies when it comes to the Middle East in a lot of ways. They both implemented um, you know, the war on terror regime. They both uh, are, are contexts in which there's a, a significant degree of racialized discrimination and Islamophobia. Um, so, so that was interesting because I was also noticing that there were differences between the ways that the diasporas were mobilizing based on their host country, whether they were in the States or, or in Britain. And so the question is, well, why was that varying if the, what uh, immigration scholars call their context of reception uh, in the United States and in Great Britain were similar? So, um, but, the, but finally, I'll just say on, on case selection is that the initial revolutionary periods in Libya, Syria, and Yemen were both um, prolonged. They were just days leading up days of protests leading up to a resignation of a president. Um, they went on for months and we know in the Syrian case for years. And these um, episodes of initial contention against uh, the incumbent regimes gave diaspora activists new opportunities to intervene. And so it gave me a chance to see, okay, when are they coming out and to what extent are they intervening and how is this changing over time? So there were a number of reasons why these cases made sense, but I think they lead to some pretty interesting comparative insights. 
Absolutely. And, and, and you see very different patterns, um, as you document so carefully in the book, in terms of how they organize and what they do. Um, and as a way of getting into that, um, I thought you did a really nice job in the book of laying out the conditions which inhibited uh, mobilization before the Arab Spring, uh, these mechanisms of transnational repression, conflict diffusion. Walk us through that a little bit and kind of why these exile communities, or not exile, but diaspora communities, um, you know, didn't mobilize before. Thank you so much. Yeah. So the caveat to this is, of course, there were some exiles from Syria, Libya, and Yemen who were active and public in their opposition to the regimes after they were forced to move abroad. But as you say, and as I show in the book, this was actually exceptionally rare. There was kind of a silent majority, I would say, in all these sets of diasporas who refrained from, avoided strategically talking about home country politics or criticizing these regimes from abroad. Um, so the first mechanism that I discovered, again, in a very grounded way by participating in anti-regime Syrian protests in Southern California was what I call transnational repression. So what I discovered was basically, or just I should say observed, was something that these communities have known for a long time, which is that the regimes, and particularly the, the Assad regime and the Gaddafi regime, um, were keeping an eye on their diasporas very closely to specifically repress their potential to mobilize uh, against the regimes from abroad. Gaddafi called um, his opponents in exile uh, Libya's quote unquote stray dogs. And since the 1980s, he literally sent agents abroad to assassinate them, uh, not unlike what we're seeing with Saudi Arabia trying to do today. So a lot of these communities lived in paralyzing fear of not only potentially being hurt by regime agents, but by being surveilled, but by being monitored in person. Um, some uh, immigrants sent their children to Libyan schools on Saturdays to learn Arabic and learn about their culture. But these were um, places where, again, surveillance was happening. They had to teach the state, uh, the state curriculum, the state propaganda. These were not free spaces. And so people said anytime they got together as Libyans, unless it was a very, very small group, a clandestine group, like in somebody's home or meeting in somebody's basement, um, you know, they, they just really did not feel comfortable um, talking about uh, Gaddafi or home country politics. A lot of the reason too was that a lot of immigrants were trying to go back and forth and maintaining connections with their families, with their parents, with their siblings. And so people were terrified that if they became known as an anti-regime figure from the US or Britain or elsewhere, that their families would pay the price. And indeed we have seen this happen um, over time and over the course of the revolutions. Now, you have, one really you have a really telling quote yeah. in there from someone whose mom basically says, don't be selfish. It's not you that's gonna pay the price. Exactly right. So there was this sense that they were really caught between, yes, you might have the opportunity to say something. Yes, we're relatively safe. But on the other hand, we still have all of these um, really important connections and personal relationships with people who are directly under the regime's watch. And so, yes, it, it was a lot of times perceived as a selfish thing to come out against the regime um, prior to the revolutions. Now, I should say the Yemeni regime did not uh, was not perceived by the diaspora as really having the capacity to hunt people as far away as, you know, the United States and Britain, um, the Yemeni regime under Saleh is is far weaker, but transnational repression and fears of, uh, you know, um, 
uh, retribution were incredibly powerful tools of social control and censorship um, prior to the revolutions in the Syrian and Libyan communities. Now, what about the conflict diffusion mechanism? Yeah, so I identify another mechanism that really um, inhibits diaspora mobilization, and not just in my cases, but in a lot of cases, um, which I call conflict transmission. Um, and what it is, is essentially when there are, I would say, conflicts um, between and within anti-regime movements and anti-regime communities, when people go abroad, they tend to bring these viewpoints, these conflicts, these identities with them that then replicate the kind of factionalism, the kinds of um, fractures and cleavages uh, that you see in the home country abroad. So it's not as if like people who are warring in the home country then start fighting abroad. It's more so that they disagree with each other. They mistrust each other to such a significant extent. Um, one example might be Muslim Brotherhood Syrians versus uh, communist Syrians. If they're living abroad in France, Britain, or the United States, a lot of times they cannot get along because they have long histories of competing with one another and uh, they are not able to come together as a unified anti-regime force. So in addition to transnational repression, when you have this conflict transmission, this basically divides and conquers the diaspora in a way that prevents them from unifying. Uh, of course, the Arab Spring undid these mechanisms, at least temporarily. So we saw people come out and come together in new ways, but we see this happen a lot and we're seeing it happen, for example, in the Hong Kong diaspora right now, all of the different groups that have diffused abroad from Hong Kong are now fighting in the diaspora over what the next step should be, who should represent their movements, who the leadership should be, what their platform should be. And uh, so for in the Yemeni case, for example, we saw huge splits between Yemenis who were advocating for South Yemen independence or autonomy versus pro-unity Yemenis who were very much against Southern secession in any way. And people just spend a lot of time and energy, unfortunately, either fighting with each other over these issues or avoiding each other because they didn't wanna get into it. And this had a huge demobilizing effect during the revolution and then particularly in the Yemeni case, almost immediately after Saleh stepped down. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the uprisings themselves and how that kind of affected uh, these uh, these people in the diaspora and brought them out into these kinds of um, of political activities. What happened? What to disrupt those mechanisms? Yeah, thank you. So. What happened was I, I rely on a concept that sociologist David Snow and his colleagues call quotidian disruption. Quotidian disruption refers to the disruption of everyday expectations, everyday routines and social relations between people that can really promote and prompt mobilization to happen. Um, and so the Arab Spring provided not only a huge amount of quotidian disruption in people's day-to-day -day lives, within the home countries, within Libya, Syria, and Yemen, but also because people in the diaspora have these ties, you know, biographical, identity-based, and with their families, they have these strong sense of ties to the home country, a, a quotidian disruptions were also experienced abroad. So for example, when Syrians or Libyans um, found that their family members back in the home country became subjected to regime repression, were going out to join the protests, um, they themselves became empowered to and felt um, you know, liberated to a large extent to come out against the regimes from abroad because the view was like, look, my family's 
become a part of this revolution. And it now it becomes my responsibility, my obligation to support them and also come out from abroad. It also became, I would say, um, it, it, rather than it being selfish to protest, it became selfish to not protest and not become visible because the people abroad are so much safer and so much more privileged vis-a-vis -vis their home country counterparts. So certainly the escalation and repression, the escalation and popular mobilization was basically diffused to these diaspora communities to also prompt mobilization there. And the mass protest coalitions that we saw come out in places you know, ranging from uh, the, free, the Free Libya Army to the mass protests in Yemen, also initially motivated Syrians, Libyans, and Yemenis across the diaspora to set aside many of their longstanding differences and come together to basically mimic, imitate, and support those folks um, who they were empathizing with, sympathizing with in the home country. So both conflict transmission and, um, tra and transnational repression were overcome as deterrent mechanisms temporarily. I'll also say that as you know, uh, regime figures, embassies, consulates defected in some cases to the revolutions, um, this also made the diaspora feel safer to come out and protest in many cases. This definitely happened in the Libyan cases because initially when they would go to protest, people sometimes in those embassies were taking people's pictures, protesters' pictures in order to surveil them and intimidate them. So as this, um, they could literally see the revolution starting to undo this kind of social control abroad. This also helped to motivate people to come out. So you, the book really goes into a lot of depth and detail about the, what they actually did in, in, as they attempted to support uh, these uprisings and revolutions. And uh, you, have, you have at least five different forms of activism that they engaged in. Why don't you walk us through this a little bit in terms of how these people came together to try and, uh, and support the causes? Absolutely. Thank you. So, um, the, so yes, I've identified this sort of repertoire, this toolkit of five ways that diaspora movements and activists attempted to help their compatriots at home. The first is what I call broadcasting. So this is when folks abroad in the diaspora would attempt to to take information that they were receiving from their contacts in the home country and literally broadcast it abroad through social media, on the internet, by contacting journalists, by contacting their representatives to say here in areas, especially where there's no international media coverage, here's what's going on and we need your help, we need your support. Um, so a lot of cases broadcasting was taking place online or through these kinds of connections with the media or politicians, but it was also taking place through protest. I think the diaspora felt a deep obligation to try to tell the public and to try to literally um, show that kind of symbolic support uh, to, to people at home. So that was the first mechanism was, or the first tactic was um, broadcasting. The second is what I call representation. So the diaspora sometimes became uh, the official uh, anointed representatives of revolutionaries at home, um, became kind of inducted into different revolutionary groups, represented them abroad as lobbyists and as advocates and activists. And sometimes they self-appointed themselves to help the revolution. I mean, Yemen, for example, didn't have a, 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 like a one central revolutionary leadership, but diaspora activists abroad would say, you know, we deeply empathize with the independent youth claims and we're going to go talk to our elected representatives about it. Mm -hmm. The third type is what I call um, 
what goes next? Well, remitting. They, they were huge uh, remittance senders and, and basically patrons of these movements. So they moved everything from food and medicine and ambulances to, to cash um, uh, and other kinds of protective equipment, recording equipment, night vision goggles, satellite phones, basically anything you could think of because revolutions are expensive. Wars are, are, require a lot of resources. And so the diaspora were huge remitters. Um, to the revolutions. They were also brokers. So as I suggested with broadcasting, they also uh, worked to connect uh, their allies in the home country with um, people abroad, institutions abroad who could potentially help them. So there were diaspora activists, for example, who brokered between CNN and Anderson Cooper and revolutionaries on the ground, or in the Syrian case, the 60 Minutes reporting team on CBS with activists in Aleppo. Um, this was pretty important given the language barriers and a lot of times the the ignorance that outside audiences have about, okay, well, like who should I talk to in this revolution? Um, who can I channel aid to? So they played a huge role in that. Uh, and then the last one was their, um, their contributions in terms of volunteering on the ground. So in a lot of cases, these expatriates actually repatriated, um, at least temporarily, coming to the front lines themselves, coming to areas around the revolutions and border zones and neighboring countries to try to be there to help, to volunteer. Uh, many of them served as you know, um, volunteer doctors, surgeons, um, trauma medical professionals, volunteer psychologists and psychiatrists. Some of them worked in refugee camps. Some of them actually helped as interpreters and translators on the front line with foreign journalists. Um, others went to just participate in the protests and see what was going for themselves to really feel like they could make a direct impact. So the, the potential of the diaspora I found is to potentially fulfill these five different types of external support and transnational activism, but I also find that not all of the diasporas were able to consistently fulfill this repertoire equally over time. And, and that's one of the things which comes through in the book is that you had this moment, uh, you know, in 2011, 2012, um, where you see this like remarkable change, but it, it proves difficult to, to sustain over time, at least in that form. That's right. That's right. And the two factors that I identify, which oh, many of you know, many of your political science listeners will find this to be of no surprise, but I will say in sociology, this is something we rarely talk about. The extent to which they were able to fulfill this repertoire, to actually move resources to the front lines, to gain international support, depended in huge part on whether they got geopolitical attention, geopolitical backing, not just from state governments, but also from international organizations and from members of the international media. So we know that in Libya, along with the NATO-based intervention, there was a huge degree of geopolitical support for the revolution. So you had Libyans abroad doing everything from, you know, moving cash to the front lines to actually going to fight in the revolutions themselves. And this was something that foreign governments actually largely supported. In the Syrian case, you see the opposite. You see the concern, a very tenuous, moderate at best, um, support for the revolutions by governments um, in the United States, for example, the Obama administration, the David Cameron administration who uh, you know, very selective in their support for the Syrian revolution. Um, but of course, once you had the influx of ISIS and the emergence of sort of factionalization of the revolution, that support completely shifted away from one of supporting the revolution to actually just fighting 
these groups fighting ISIS. And so these groups became uh, lost to a large extent. They couldn't necessarily access the home countries. They didn't necessarily have politicians who wanted to hear their claims anymore. Um, they found it to be oftentimes dangerous to even send humanitarian aid to the front lines because you could get accused potentially of supporting the wrong group or supporting terrorism. So this lack of support in the Syrian case um, had a detrimental effect. And then in the Yemeni case, there was very little geopolitical support for regime change um, uh, and, and in the case of the Saleh regime. So the Yemenis, they, they were primarily relegated to focusing on protest, um, but they didn't have that much more they could do other than potentially you know, um, raise aid through, through charity. But even that, as I talk about, um, mm -hmm. was difficult because of the final mechanism, which is that of you know, resource conversion. So there's this question about not only do you have the geopolitical support you need to be channeling resources across state lines, but does the community itself have the resources to do this and especially continuously over, the, over time? So the Syrian American community is extremely wealthy, not only compared to other Arab and Middle Eastern groups, but compared to average you know, Caucasian Americans. But the, of course the crisis has been so prolonged, so severe, uh, the amount of resources that have been needed to address the refugee crisis and the violence and the humanitarian problems is just exponential. It's just almost infinite. And people not only you know, lost the ability to continuously channel aid to the revolution, um, but they also had to shift to a more defensive humanitarian response. Uh, and a lot of people simply burned out, they ran out of resources to donate. Um, and the Yemeni community is primarily much more working class, um, much less socioeconomically advantaged. And this of course affected the extent to which they could maintain protests over time and remit aid to the front lines. Um, the Libyans, I, I don't think, they don't report having a problem uh, with resource conversion in large part because the revolution happened during a delimited period of time and uh, a lot of the wealthy and more well-to-do Libyans stepped up and contributed basically in any way that they could. But we need to be, I think, paying attention to these different transnational processes, right? We have transnational repression and conflict transmission, uh, potentially deterring mobilization. But even when people experience these quotidian disruptions and they come out and come together as never before, you're gonna see the effects and the interventions that they're going to be able to make very significantly along two additional lines, which, which as I said, were the degree of geopolitical support that they have and the extent to which they can convert resources to these issues over time. So I think that this is such a rich book and uh, it, it really is able to show uh, in really granular detail how these communities organized. Maybe for the last question, you could talk a little bit about the research itself and um, kind of how you came about and what you were trying to do with this grounded research as you describe it and what you think that adds to the way we study these sorts of movements. Yeah, I, I've always been attracted to a more grounded um, approach, which I primarily rely on using interviews. So the book relies on over 230 interviews with Yemenis, Syrians, and Libyans who are incredibly gracious in donating their time to me to explain what they've done, to explain how things were changing. I do feel that it's important, in, especially in cases of social movements that tend to be overlooked or even maligned, <laughs> um, that it's really important to talk to the people involved to understand their perspectives and what's going on. Um, it's not necessarily obvious, it, 
well, I should say this, it wasn't necessarily obvious to me uh, after doing 90 interviews or 100 interviews, what was actually going on, because there was a lot of contradictory stories, but the comparative approach really helped me to sort that out. So um, for example, Yemenis might say, well, we've come together as never before and, and it's been an amazing experience, but also we weren't able to achieve our goals and everybody's fighting. And I would say, well, how is this happening, right? But it was through the comparison and the comparative narratives and stories and oftentimes being there in person myself that I was able to understand that transnational activism um, is, is full of promise in terms of the interventions people can make, the contributions they can make to anti-authoritarian causes, but it's also full of perils, um, particularly because of this long distance repression, particularly because of this tra uh, conflict transmission. And so being able to reconcile those different um, facilitating factors and also obstacles was really something that I felt that uh, was best served uh, as a research question by, by talking to people and being on the ground as much as possible myself. Um, and in so doing, of course, I met the most amazing uh, people, including revolutionaries from Syria, like Ra'ed Faris, that the Syrian American Council was bringing around on kind of a speaking tour to the United States. So seeing the ways that people were connecting, seeing the deep empathy that people had, I also came to realize that, you know, it's really the, the, the diaspora is so important. It's, it's not just important for what's going on in the home countries. These folks are also on the front lines of defending minority communities in Western democracies against xenophobia, against racism, against Islamophobia. And by understanding the conditions under which they become empowered to intervene in their home countries, we can also see how they can become empowered to fight against uh, authoritarian tendencies and policies here abroad as well. Um, so I, I appreciate that by doing interviews and, and being on the ground, you can see these processes unfold. It tends to be a bit overwhelming. As you said, there's a lot of detail in this work and it can be tricky to sort out, but that's just the way that I'm, I'm attracted to answering questions and, and trying to answer or reconcile these different problems and paradoxes. Well, great, thanks. Uh, we've been speaking to Dana Moss about her book, The Arab Spring Abroad and uh, Just Out with Cambridge. Uh, Dana, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And uh, you can use the promo code MOSS, M-O-S-S, 2021 on the Cambridge website for 20% off, I believe, for the next year. Um, but also it should be available to be downloaded um, and accessed through academic libraries. If anybody has trouble accessing it, though, just shoot me an email and uh, we'll make it happen. All right. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Mark. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we're joined by Wendy Perlman of Northwestern University, an author of the new article, Mobilizing from Scratch, Large-Scale Collective Action Without Pre-Existing Organization in the Syrian Uprising, which was just published in Comparative Political Studies, part of a special issue. Uh, Wendy, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. So tell us about this article and the broader research that it comes from. Yeah, so this is part of a larger research agenda, things I've been working on for many years now, trying to explain participation in high-risk dissent. So I've written various pieces, um, some articles focusing on an emotional angle about the role of emotions in general and fear in particular, and how people do or do not participate in uh, risky dissent, on uh, another article on individual level participation, sort of focusing using um, a concept of moral identity uh, to explain participation in post uh, 
protest cascades. Um, I have a book chapter that looks at a single event in southern Syria in March to, uh, 2011. And then this piece tries to take a more structural organizational angle on the same, the same genuine puzzle. And, the, and that puzzle is, I mean, tell us what is the big puzzle here? Yeah. So the premise is that there is a lot of scholarship and social movements, um, both social movement theory and studies that really demonstrate powerfully the role of pre-existing organization in many cases of large scale mobilization. And in social movement studies, sometimes this is referred to as civil society, sometimes as indigenous organizational strength mobilizing structures, pre-existing networks, and the paradigmatic case is the American civil rights movement. And the argument that part of what allowed that social movement to emerge was pre-existing structures and networks that a movement tapped into, appropriated, and channeled into uh, coordinating, mm -hmm. recruiting people to, to act collectively. And I worry that the focus uh, becomes an excessive focus almost in searching for organizational antecedents, such that when people see social movements, they think, wow, there has to have been some pre-existing organization that explained this mass large-scale mobilization, leading scholars to perhaps exaggerate its existence. And I'm concerned that this misunderstands and misrepresents mobilization in, in settings where there's overwhelming repression and state violence. It risks uh, missing opportunities to think about other sorts of trajectories and pathways to protest that don't necessarily begin with pre-existing social capital. And in general can lead us just to underestimate the role of activists' own agency, how they use creativity and resourcefulness and their own strategic smarts to make mobilization happen in spite of the lack of those sort of antecedent conditions. A lot of contingency. Exactly. So some of this, this literature um, emphasizing indigenous organizational strength, for example, builds on democratic cases in which there was a relatively healthy civil society um, pre-existing that fostered this range of associational forms prior to the onset of contention. And sometimes people bring that kind of orientation into authoritarian cases. And the puzzle then becomes, you know, how in really repressive settings do oppositionists manage to build these mobilizing structures or appropriate them despite such repression? And I worry that that question then leads us to ignore what might be a more basic question, which is how do dissenters manage to mobilize despite simply not having those types of mobilizing structures? How do they mobilize regardless? So that's the real question driving this piece. How does protest mobilize in repressive settings where civil society is severely curtailed such that autonomous associations really scarcely exist? So before we talk about the, uh, the details of the Syrian case, let's talk a little bit about the research itself and kind of the data methods that you used uh, to approach this question. Yeah, so in, I began in 2012 interviewing displaced Syrians about their lives. And the initial question for me was really this question, how do people come to participate in dissent beside, um, despite high risks? So I began a summer in Jordan in 2012, essentially interviewing every displaced Syrian I could. I started interviewing Syrian refugees, essentially because I was too afraid to do this type of research inside Syria. And it seemed a reckless choice to do that, have sort of frank, conversations about protests and politics. So I began interviewing Syrian refugees and essentially 
got hooked. Um, I returned to Jordan, went on to Turkey, to Lebanon, uh, have been now many summers in Europe. Um, so essentially it's almost a 10 year um, research uh, project of, of interviewing uh, Syrian refugees. Um, my interviews are super open-ended. I begin with a general prompt, something sometimes as, as general as tell me about yourself. And the interviews just go from there and they spit in all sorts of directions. Um, sometimes becoming very detailed, rich narratives about the uprising itself, sometimes focusing only on refugee life. So from this huge archive that I continue to build, I'm doing uh, interviews still every opportunity I have, um, sometimes now over Zoom. Um, I've, I've been able to do lots of different projects and this then uh, pulls upon that same body of, of open-ended uh, narrative interview data, which I then analyze qualitatively, I've coded, I've used in different ways. Um, but in this, for this article, looking for mechanisms, stories, processes, self-understandings of how people protested, why they protested, and how they coordinated at the local level. Well, so let's talk about Syria then and kind of what you found and what enabled this kind of protest under what was clearly an extremely high risk and a repressive context. Yeah, in, in the article, I identify uh, five mechanisms, which I argue are partly what allow or could allow people to organize, quote, from scratch. And from scratch, I also don't want to overstate it. No protest happens in a vacuum. Syrian mobilization did not happen in, in a vacuum. There were networks, there were social structure and so forth, but not to the point I think that we should exaggerate pre-existing organizational structures mm -hmm. at the expense of what people developed spontaneously and in the course of mobilization itself. So I go through five different mechanisms through which activists and participants made this happen. The mechanisms are each um, analytical processes in their own right, but they also build chronologically. So following them from the first to the fifth sort of walks a reader through um, a sequence mm -hmm. of how the Syrian uprising got off the ground. So the first mechanism essentially argues that oppositionists' awareness of their own organizational deficits shapes their approach to collective action. In other words, activists are aware that they don't have strong pre-existing mobilizing structures and, and try to make up for it however they can mm -hmm. and to kind of extract the mobilizational power they can from elements other than pre-existing associations as they're where they don't, don't exist. Um, and here, for example, I look at, in the beginning of the Syrian uprising, at the use of mosques and, and how uh, many protests came out of mosques. And this was in part inspired by, I think, a well-intentioned colleague who once asked, oh, oh, mosques in the Syrian context, did those kind of function like churches in the African-American context in the civil rights movement, given that there's been such um, path-breaking research on the role of African-American churches in propelling the civil rights movement. And I said, no, not at all. Those African-American churches offered membership, leadership, social capital, informational networks. They were fixed congregations that then were appropriated to help the civil rights movement. Mosques in the Syrian context were state monitored, <laughs> infiltrated by agents, um, had no fixed congregations. Activists used them because it was the rare intersection of time and place 
where a crowd could legally form. They were simply the only places where people could get together mm -hmm. and they got together and launched protests from mosques in spite of the fact that there were all sorts of loyalists usually among the those uh, in prayer or waiting outside ready, ready to clobber anybody as soon as they started shouting slogans. So oppositions are, oppositions are aware of their limits and try to make the most of them. That's the first mechanism. The second mechanism are used that mobilizing structures might follow initial protest events right. rather than precede them. So once contentious events get protests off the ground, it itself jumpstarts organizations. It, it, it clarifies the kinds of organizational forms that must be created um, and the kinds of needs that must be met. So rather than mobilizing structures leading to protest, protest itself can be the mechanism that leads um, mobilizing structures. You to said this is more of a structural argument, but there's a lot of agency there. A lot of agency there, a, absolutely. A lot of, of agency. Of course, again, nothing happening from a vacuum, but mm -hmm. we can see the types of, of, of local committees that got developed, the way that developed into larger networks and so forth, all happened after protest, where people also came to get to know each other sometimes in protest. They recognized each other, who was an oppositionist, who was not. And then they came together because they needed to sustain protest. And the idea of creating an organization to sustain protest is kind of unthinkable mm -hmm. before protest actually happens. So it's, it's again playing with the sequence of, of mobilizational steps. Yeah, the sequence thing is really important here. Thanks. I think that's one of the, the main um, challenges that this from scratch view has to, to a view that, that emphasizes pre-existing structures. So the third mechanism argues that as contention continues over time, it propels more forms of organization and also more refined forms of organization. So protest in this setting leads to repression, repression leads to new needs that need to be met, new problems that demand more sophisticated strategies for coordinating and, and aggregating resources. So here there are examples, for example, in the realm of media, there were protests, people spontaneously grabbed their phones to start filming protests, and then those slowly evolved into media collectives that became quite sophisticated. You know, people got hurt, they needed, the injured needed care, with the most spontaneous sort of moves to create medical relief then evolved into field hospitals and very sophisticated sort of uh, relief networks. Um, even, you know, the civil defense or as we often call them, the white helmets began from a spontaneous urge when there was a bombing and neighbors rushed to, um, to, to other neighbors in need through training and developed a very sophisticated hierarchical um, organization with, with many headquarters and so forth. So, so spontaneous action can lead to organizational sophistication. Um, the fourth mechanism is um, that the very awareness of risk can encourage divergence from pre-existing social structures. So here, this challenge is an idea that you sort of have pre-existing social structure and mobilizational forms reflect that pre-existing social structure, something that Doug McAdam refers to as almost a fact of social movement mobilization. And here again, there's no doubt that many Syrians were recruited into the uprising via other people they knew, but they also created mobilizing structures that tried to purposefully avoid pre-existing social structure. And that was because- Reducible to family or tribe. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's because it was dangerous. People were aware that as an activist, you could be arrested, you could be uh, then interrogated, tortured into revealing the names of everybody else you knew who was participating. So some activists pieced together what I kind of call this paradoxically unsocial social network, piecing it together so people deliberately did not know others involved in the same network. And this you know, mirrors and is well known in studies of um, underground groups, clandestine covert mobilization, whether it's you know, or organized criminal networks, even you know, leaderless terrorist cells of this kind of cell-like compartmentalized structure. I think is really interesting in the Syrian case is that um, these models were replicated in the hundreds of thousands by people who maybe had no previous protest experience. And it was meant to be the backbone of a mass popular uprising that was aiming for visibility, aiming to get millions on the street. So whereas terror cells might be underground and try to stay secret, this was a secret or compartmentalized organization, but trying to be uh, the engine of a national revolt. So finally, that the fifth uh, mechanism there is um, that map mobilization can sort of reconfigure not only social organization, but even sort of social norms that's themselves or, or sociability itself. And, and here I just think that we can't overstate the degree of um, in which so many Syrians describe pre-2011 Syria as a context of endemic distrust, mm -hmm. of atomization, of suspicion, that all of these uh, forms of mobilization gave rise to do new ways of being in society based on solidarity, cooperation, belonging. And I don't want to romanticize the, the, the uprising, but these, this is a, was really revolutionary and transformative and can't be credited to something that existed before the uprising itself was generated by mobilization instead. So I guess last question then is, you know, you take this uh, this approach to understanding mobilization under these conditions, and how do you think that that should reshape the way that uh, we as scholars are approaching these kind of protest moments? Oh, what a great great question! I, mean, I guess a, a couple of things um, I can say that you know, working on the research that I've done specifically, you know, one is one point from this article is to to really emphasize and and not minimize agency. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the, the sheer agency it takes, which means the will, the, the courage, the creativity, um, and take, take that really seriously. Um, of course, not at the expense of, of structure, but, um, but not to create structural uh, explanations um, in which the, the, the people who make, who make protest happen are, are, are fall out of the, of the, the picture. Uh, related to that, then would be right to the, I guess, relate to the methods that I've used um, in taking people's own experiences, their lived experiences, their narratives, their self experiences, their self understandings, their stories really seriously. Um, it is easy to dismiss people's stories as, you know, littered by all sorts of biases of, of whether it's people don't remember well or there's social desirability bias and how they, they present themselves. For sure, there's the sampling biases and snowball samplings with these types of interview processes. Um, it's not a cure-all and it's not without its, its, its shortcomings, but I also don't think that people's uh, lived experiences should be dismissed. And when Syrians, um, like others, say, you know, it was a, an incredibly difficult, we'd had no civil society beforehand. 
we lived in a wasteland. We made an uprising that surprised ourselves. I never thought it could happen, but right. it did. But that itself is a puzzle um, that we should take seriously. And it's a puzzle that's grounded in people's own understandings of their own lives and their own, uh, their own social experiences. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, Wendy, uh, thank you so much for joining us and talking about the article and looking forward to see uh, where it goes next. Thank you so much. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topics segment, we're joined by Salah Ben-Hamu of the University of Central Florida. We're going to talk about the coup, which recently happened in Sudan, uh, derailing its democratic transition. Uh, Salah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So walk us through a little bit what just happened and uh, what do you think we need to be looking out for? So in looking at what just happened in Sudan, it makes sense to go back a few weeks and kind of split between prior to the September 21st failed coup in Sudan and then the protests that were going on in October. Mm -hmm. So in September, there was a failed coup from alleged loyalists to the Omar al-Bashir regime, which was toppled in 2019 by the mass uprisings, which were um, punctuated by a military coup against the strongman. As a result of the, uh, of the September coup, we saw deteriorating conditions between the civilian faction of the transitional government and the military faction of the transitional government. A war of words began. Civilians started accusing the military of secretly funding the coup and secretly facilitating the, the failed ouster mm -hmm. or the failed uh, uh, removal of the prime minister. And at the same time, the military struck back, stated that the military, that the civilians were interfering, interfering in the military's affairs and that civilians had by and large failed the democratic transition and the promise of the revolution. Now, if we fast forward to October, as these conditions are deteriorating, we also see similar conditions within the civilian faction start to break apart. So for listeners who might not know, the civilian segment of the Sovereignty Council was composed of the Forces of Freedom and Change, which was a civilian coalition formed after the um, uprising against Omar al-Bashir. So they represent various different political interests and political groups within Sudan. Mm -hmm. Within this coalition, a splinter faction emerged known as the Charter of the National Accord, uh, composed primarily of former armed groups such as, uh, such as Mini Manawi's uh, Sudan Liberation Movement, as well as Jibril Ibrahim's uh, Justice and Equality Movement, as well as some other parties such as Sudanese Ba'athist Party. And these forces allege that forces of freedom of change had become monopolized, had become essentially hijacked by a number of other forces within the coalition. So as this stark fra fragmentation started to occur within this, within the forces of freedom of change, we see this splinter faction begin to defect to the military side and start backing high ranking members of the sovereignty council on the military side, such as General Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, as well as General Mohamed Degalo of the rapid support force. What we saw on October 16th it was essentially pro-military protests funded by this splinter faction in which protesters, which uh, are tied to the, uh, the splinter faction as well as their supporters and partisans, started taking streets and calling for a the dissolution of the government and for uh, Abdel Fattah al-Burhan to take power. A few days later on October the 21st, 
We saw counter protesters by the mainstream civilians of the forces of freedom of change take to the streets and counter with calls to remove the military from the uh, sovereignty council and transition into a full civilian government. And those protests were huge. And those protests were massively huge and they massively outnumbered the previous protesters. And that's a, a key point to make. So despite the fact that there was this really chronic polarization going on within the forces of freedom and change, it should be noticed that on the streets, pro-civilian and pro-democracy um, uh, demonstrators by and large outnumbered any kind of pro-military and pro-coup uh, demonstrators. There was enough on the other side to embolden the military. That, that was precisely it. By having those forces on the street, it, it almost it gave the military and it gave Barhan specifically a justification to strike at Hamdouk and strike at the mainstream civilians, essentially gifting him with a valuable ally in this ongoing struggle. But some people have drawn comparisons to, for example, Egypt in 2013, but the, the protests in favor of the military were nowhere near the size or scope of that, of that comparison. Yeah, and, and, I would, and I would note that despite the, there being many significant differences between the Egyptian case and the Sudanese case, there is this kind of element that you have civilian forces kind of manufacturing much of this discontent, not so much discontent, but rather manufacturing civilian support for the armed forces in a way that undermines the current civilian authority. So, for instance, there's, uh, there was a recent paper, I believe you had the author on a podcast here, Drew Kinney, who had written about the mm. Egypt case and the role of civilian politicians and oligarchs essentially bankrolling these protests and essentially colluding with the armed forces to undermine Morsi's government. And we see a similar dynamic play out here in which elements within the forces of freedom of change bankrolled these protests and essentially aligned with the military and thus removed Hamdouk. So what, what do you think made the military decide to move now? So I think we should be looking at it from the more domestic side. I, I do think that the pro-military forces emboldened them significantly. When you have civilians on the street asking for the military to come in and rid themselves and rid the, the country of the civilian government, you essentially have the ability to masquerade the coup as a revolution. And as well, you can you can point to these individuals as particularly relevant as uh, public opinion. So, for instance, folks on the street calling for uh, stating discontent for the mainstream civilian government signals that, by and large, uh, Sudanese population are unhappy with Hamdouk and with the transitional government, and suggest that they want something new. As an officer. This is particularly attractive because this allows you to basically point to folks that would justify your actions and essentially come in and um, support you in the post-coup order. So since the, since the coup happened, uh, we've seen uh, a, a return of street protests. And you know, what, what do you think would have to happen in order to uh, bring about a reversal of this coup, given that uh, General Burhan has dissolved the Sovereignty Council and declared emergency law? Is it possible for street protests to push back on this? So, so I think it is significantly important to have these street protesters 
move in large mass and demand a reversal of the military coup that just happened. At the same time, I think the international community has to be very, very adamant and very, very genuine in its, in its pushback against the coup. We can't have a situation in which there are these mixed signals towards the junta in Sudan in which maybe that maybe we'll legitimize them, maybe not. It has to be a strong, concentrated effort to push them back out and to reverse the coup. At the same time, you're going to need the street protesters to sustain a large enough presence on the street that their officers have essentially no choice but to step down. And Sudan has has experience uh, with this, uh, not just two years ago, but there's a long history of Sudanese uh, popular mobilization. Yeah, so interestingly enough, the, the October 21st uh, protests had coincided with the anniversary of the 1964 and, uh, popular mobilization against General Ibrahim Aboud, uh, in which they essentially popular mobilization forced him to resign and dissolve the military junta and hand power back to civilians. Sudan has a long history of civilian and military almost a symbiotic relationship between mm -hmm. the two. Even if we were to move into less democratic um, context, so the 1989 coup against the civilian government of Sadiq al-Mahdi was by and large orchestrated by the National Islamic Front of Hassan al-Turabi in coordination with officers such as al-Bashir. Essentially, these forces came together to plot one of these civil military coups to supplant the government and although Torabi was arrested at first, there's significant evidence that suggests that he was very well uh, informed that this coup was happening and that he actively plotted it with, uh, with his disciples and the armed forces. Essentially, what we see happen is a similar situation in the aftermath of the 89 coup. We see, we see a, civil mil a civilian military like joint government take power. And at first, Torabi is exalted as the power behind the throne. There is a BBC news report in and throughout the 90s, which labeled him as the de facto leader of Sudan. But similar to the situation that just happened in this more democratic context, there was high levels of factionalism within the civilian wing of the government. And this was due to Torabi's increasing dictatorial tendencies. There was also due to his increasing um, extremism and embracement of extremist forces. So the one, uh, one event that we could specifically point to is the attempted assassination of Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak at the, at the time. Mm -hmm. And the government, specifically the civilians in the government, were not on board with this at all. And they were very divided over this. And this gave rise to the idea that we should probably move beyond Torabi. So essentially, as this power struggle began within the civilian um, wing of the party, Omar al-Bashir came in as well, and it was the set was the pillar to use against him. So essentially, rival civilian rivals of Torabi sided with Bashir to remove Torabi, and essentially Bashir was able to monopolize power within Sudan. Hmm. So you know, let's bring that line of argument back up to the present day. Then, uh, you know, what are the major lines of contention between uh, the the military and uh, the civilian the civilian forces and the government? And for that matter, between Burhan and Hamati. So that's a really good point because at the same time, there's 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 layers to this. We have the tension, like as we mentioned, between civilians in the power sharing arrangement, and we also have tensions between civilians and military. And then there's also the tensions within 
the military faction themselves. So between civilians and the military, there was there had been tensions from almost the, the get-go in terms of uh, issues such as dismantling the military's powerful economic appar apparatus. Essentially, they hold much of the country's wealth and not just the, the regular armed forces. This is true for the rapid support forces as well. There was also uh, contention over the military's increased foreign policy role, which was supposed to be delegated to civilians. And then there's, of course, the June 16th massacre, which had not been uh, fully investigated or prosecuted. And the military was adamant about avoiding this kind of, um, was adamant about allowing this kind of civilian interference into their affairs. Right. On the flip side, the, the rapid support forces and the regular armed forces have always had an ongoing tension. Hamedi is seen as an outsider by most of the armed forces. And the rapid support forces are, in general are seen as this kind of paramilitary force out, um, without any oversight, without any checks. And this has led to a lot of tension over time between the two, the, the two forces. But in this regard, it seems that, specifically with the coup, it seems that both Borhan and Hamedi are on board with what just happened, as there were reports that rapid support forces helped the military secure Khartoum as the coup was um, unfolding. So you've been studying, of course, not just Sudan, but uh, but coups more generally uh, in the Middle East and more broadly. Are there any comparative lessons from beyond Sudan that you think might help us to make sense of where we're going now? So in the majority of cases where we see this kind of power sharing arrangement between soldiers and civilians in the Middle East, it almost always ends badly for the civilians for a number of different reasons but mostly because civilians are just too divided to put up a united front against soldiers. So I've done a lot, a lot of research on like the post-colonial Syrian cases and the Iraqi cases. And in Syria, the Ba'ath Party took power in 1963 in a joint civil military coup, but almost immediately civilians fractionalized into these two competing forces. The issue here is that these fragmentations lead to a continued politicization of the military faction of the government. Essentially, they're able to pull the military into uh, basically act as a veto player within their disputes and essentially leads to a, a similar situation as to what we just saw in Sudan in a coup backs one of these factions, uh, uh, soldiers back one of these factions and stages a coup. In 1966, the old guard of the Ba'athist party was removed because of soldiers had backed their faction. Similarly, in Iraq, in 63, the Ba'athists had taken power through joint civil military um, means. And as the civilians started to factionalize, soldiers exploited these divisions. And nine months later, civilians were out of power. So a key lesson here in general is that linking arms with the armed forces in any kind of situation, be it a democratic transition or in a more autocratic setting, such as the Ba'athist cases in Syria and Iraq, is perilous if civilians are not able to be united along a common goal and are not able to see themselves to see wherever they might want to take the government. If they're not able to see that through together, it's going to lead to rival groups within the government competing for power and foments much more uh, instability than we can imagine. Well, great. That's not uh, not a very promising conclusion, but uh, I guess that's where we are right now in Sudan and around the region. Uh, Salah Ben Hamoud, thank you for joining us uh, to talk this through. Thank you so much. <laughs>